I think it's very fitting uh, what we're going to be discussing today to church um, as we take just a, a brief break from the book of Revelation. We will pick up in that next week. But in starting today, there's two texts as usual that I would like to read from. There's an Old Testament and a New Testament text. And since the primary text will be out of the New Testament, or I'm sorry, out of the Old Testament, I would like to read the New Testament text first. And that is the entire chapter, actually, of Hebrews chapter 12. And I would ask that you would just give your undivided attention to the reading of God's holy word as we go through Hebrews chapter 12. Follow along with me, church, as we go through. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight the path for your feet, so what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Then no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit that blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Verse 18, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festival gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape 
if we reject who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates removal of all things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let us give our attention now to the Old Testament text today which is Psalm 39 in its entirety. Psalm chapter 39 in its entirety. And I will also read, beginning in verse 1. To the choir master, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused. The fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth. For it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man... With rebukes for a sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Church, as we read the Old Testament and New Testament texts, one of the things that I like to do, and I know Pastor Joe likes to do, is to point out some of the things that we do in the service, and really why we do them. And here I read rather extensive portions of scripture, and I hope that you give your attention to them. It is um, the most precious words that we will hear without a shadow of a doubt in all of our lifetimes, the word of God read directly to us, but also with the exegeting and the explanation of it that follows in preaching. But I do hope that you listen carefully when they are read that your attention is to them, and also that it's, it's a, I guess, a sort of a test, uh, if you will, that after the sermon is finished, if you can connect those two passages and make sense about why those two were chosen, you really were able to fully understand uh, what was preached to you today. So I guess that's a way of uh, kind of a summative assessment. It's an education term, right? But afterwards to go, if you can see the connection between those two and how the uh, Old New Testament are both um, joining together, you really are able to make much sense out of the sermon and the preaching uh, that is given to you on any Lord's Day. But today, church, as we look at this, I want to start by saying a very ambiguous yet direct statement, and that is this, that we live in a very distracted society and in a very distracted age. 
And, and I know that that statement, again, is, is broad and ambiguous, but with just a small amount of context of me saying that verse, I think that I could get everyone here to agree on some grounds that there is truth to that statement. If we live in an era where technology has brought us really to a point where we are more connected to the entire world all at once at any given time, more than any other time in history, and that is more and more true with every passing year, thus the context for my opening statement that we live in a very distracted time in a very distracted world. Though modern technology, or through modern technology, we're now able to control nearly every part of our life, from our home security systems, our refrigerators, our thermostats, our emails, our social media, our news feeds, our stocks, and the list would go on and on. And all of this is done, church, through a single device that we carry in the convenience of our pockets at nearly every moment of the day. That actually, no, no joke intended, reminded me, I've got to make sure my cell phone's silenced. Okay, I did remember. Good. Probably a good reminder for you guys too, right? The invention of the cell phone has given us a sort of live feed, church, to all the things that we are connected to in life. Teenagers today are especially taken captive by this technology as current psychological research has actually begun to publish studies stating that many of the teens today spend more time communicating through technological means than they actually do through physical human interaction. And that research does not stop at just the teenagers of today and the youth of today. Further research also suggests that technological communication is fast taking over for all forms of communication, regardless of one's age. For me, church, I'm actually old enough to remember a childhood in which my mind had not become, dare I use the words, addicted to cell phones and social media and the technological addictions of today. For I remember a childhood where the sunset communicated where I should be at a particular time and when I should head home, not a text message. I remember uh, a time when I could leave and go and play outside quite a distance away from home for several hours without someone thinking I was missing because they had texted me and hadn't heard a response for 15 minutes. But today the number of teens who own a personal cell phone is nearing close to 100%. And the common age for one to actually own such a device continues to be pushed backwards more and more with every given year, from high school down through middle school into the upper elementary, now even into the lower elementary ages. The youth of today, the very young youth of today, are walking around more and more connected to this society. Now understand, church, that I'm not trying to say that the cell phone age of today is necessarily a bad thing. That is, not, that is not my point. My point is simply that the reality of the technological age that we live in today has brought about more distractions in one's daily life than from the times before. How can it not? We are just so connected to everything and all things at any given time. Thus, in this connected world of today, none of us are able to fully escape the twofold effects of technological communication. For we're more connected. We're more connected to everything and anything that we need to at all times, yet in many ways... Because of this, we are more distracted by that as well. In our highly connected world, our minds have been forced to connect globally to anything and everything. Again, almost all hours of the day and night. It becomes harder and harder to simply turn off all the aspects of life, of work or school or our social lives. And the lines of work, school, and our social lives become more and more blurred as confusion of when one should be turned off and stop and the other should begin. Those lines become more and more of a blur of what should be crossed and what shouldn't and what should be started and what shouldn't and what should end and when it shouldn't. 
Work emails are always only one click away. News updates of global tragedies can ding on our phones in the middle of the night, tempting us to check what was updated on our phones. Our text messages begin to store up as we wrestle with articulating a proper and thorough response to all of our context. Thus, we have backed up text lines and email lines. At least I know that's the way it is for me. I would presume that for everyone in here, we all have some form of email, social media, or text message that most likely needs tending to at this exact moment. It exists in the back of our minds as something we need to get done when we're able to give more attention to it. In fact, even now, in addition to that, many of your minds are fighting the temptation of wandering to think about or look at a particular app or email or update or news or whatever it is on your phones. Perhaps it is work-related, perhaps it is school-related, perhaps it's a person that you've been thinking about, perhaps it's an event from the past or the present or the future, perhaps it pertains to the constant news that we receive daily, all about the bad things going on in our world. Whatever it is, church, stop it. You should be listening to this sermon right now. But seriously, I do not say these things to fault you. I say these things because I understand that to be true. That's why it doesn't take much convincing on that opening statement. For I, I too, understand the pressures that this information age places upon us. I'm not immune to the distractedness that our modern world lives in today. And though I grew up in my teen years having little to no concept of a cell phone or a tablet or the internet or social media, I can hardly think of a world without them today. In all fairness, the great technological advancements of today's communication have brought about tremendous good. So much so that to make a list of all of its benefits, really, uh, I wouldn't have enough time in an entire sermon to make a list of such benefits. As an example, though, today when I walked in, our audio was not working, and here was Dalton FaceTiming Mike over in Kansas telling him how we can fix it. Thus, we have audio today. So that is just one of the many benefits to give the benefit of the doubt of the many benefits and, 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 and advancements that the technological age of today has given us. However, in the midst of it, it does take a very conscious, committed, and disciplined effort to ensure that our minds do not be consumed with the wrong things at the wrong times. This technology must be used at all times only as a tool, never to become our master. We must learn to discipline our minds and extend our focus in order to give the proper attention to the proper things at the proper times. And this is exceptionally true when it comes to the things of God. Perhaps even more true when it comes to the distinct time of worshiping the Lord on the Lord's Day, this very moment that we're in right now. It is essential that we come to this place with a mind that is ready and prepared and focused and being able to engage with the things of God. For if we do not intentionally prepare our hearts and our minds in the midst of this distracted world that we live in today, our minds will quickly wander and we will lose focus on that which is of most importance. However, in the midst of this world, of such distractions, there is actually a shortcut that exists, a shortcut that brings us directly to focus. There's a shortcut that is almost instantaneous, shutting out almost everything else, giving us almost a near laser-like focus on the things that are important, especially to the things pertaining to that of God. It's a shortcut that we all experience, actually, at some time or another in our life. It's a shortcut that is common to all of us. 
The shortcut that I'm referring to, church, are those times in this life when we are forced to directly deal, to deal with, face-to-face, the effects of sin. Perhaps it may be a personal tragedy. Perhaps it may be witnessing the suffering of a loved one. Perhaps it is the disgust that a Christ follower experiences when looking at and reflecting upon the ways of the wicked and how the wicked seem to live with little, little to no consequences while parading in their wicked state. Whatever the case, sin, church, has the ability to quickly, very quickly, get our attention. And when sin does grab hold of our attention, a tunnel vision of focus seems to appear. A perspective, if you will, is given when suddenly all of the distractions around us seem so small in comparison to the sinful effects that are before us. Do you know what I mean, church, when I'm saying this? I struggled a bit in writing this that I could articulate a a broad concept, but I I can't paint it of exactly how it would be for you. But I I assume that as I'm saying these things, that something is coming to mind. Examples of this are, are coming to mind for you. I have several examples I know in my mind, for one reason or another, that of, of when I was forced to look eye to eye at sin's ugly face and how sin had tainted and distorted human life in some way, shape, or form on this planet. Some of my examples that come to mind are my own personal encounters with sin. Some are examples where I witnessed sin fall upon a righteous person and I was then forced to watch as it seemed that the righteous had to endure the needless suffering that was before them. Some of my examples are when uh, I was able to watch the wicked from a distance in their sinful state and it seemed as if they were able to live this way and that they were actually winning as they paraded around in their wicked state. It's at these times in life, church, that we seem to, uh, to gain a very, very important perspective in life. When trials or struggles or questions or difficulties come our way, they seem to grab hold. They seem to grab hold of our distracted minds as, as if to grab hold of each side of our face and, and to bring it to a very focused point. You know, it's almost like a parent grabbing a child's face and, and, and making sure they have their attention eye to eye. That's, that's the sense that we get when we have to look at sin face to face. I'd like to ask you at this, point, uh, at this point, church, when has your faith experienced the most growth? Have you ever thought about that? I'm sure you could think about when it was most tested or what were the most difficult times in, in your walk, but when has, it, when has uh, your faith experienced the most growth? When has your walk with Christ benefited the most since you have been a Christian? I presume it was during some time or form of difficulty in your life. I suspect that it was in a time similar to that which I shared, where in one form or another, you were forced to look at sin face-to-face, eye-to-eye. Reflecting upon this point, I am also quickly reminded of the words of 1 Peter 1, verses 6-7, where in regards to our faith, Peter states, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that your faith that is more precious than gold, your faith that is more precious than gold, can be found to result in praise and honor and glory. Our faith, church, is directly and intimately tied to our trials. You do know that, right? This, this hopefully is not news to you. 
Our, our, our faith is, is intimately, directly tied to our trials and difficulties that we go through in life. Our direct relationship with God is intimately connected to that which we experience in life, on our time here on earth. Have you ever stopped to think about that before? That that which you go through on a day-to-day basis, what you live through day-to-day and encountering sin in its various forms is one of the primary ways that God is actually determined to teach you, to grow us, to perfect you, to perfect us. I think that scripture is actually quite clear on this point, that God specifically and intimately uses the events in our life to shape and mold our faith into that which is good, to that which is godly, to that which is eternal. Not to say that God causes these events, Not to say that God causes all of them and and brings about this sin and suffering. That would be a sermon for another time again. Rather, God uses all events in our lives to build our faith. A faith that, according to Peter, is more precious than that of gold. Therefore, I want to summarize my introduction here very briefly because I think it's very important to understand where I'm going with this. And so I um, am going to do something a little bit odd. I'm going to give a four-point recap of actually my introduction, just for clarity's sake. And here's the four points that I want you to understand in my introduction to the sermon today. Point number one is that we are often distracted. We're often very distracted in our society, in our own minds. Point number two is that we must learn to focus on the proper things. We must learn to to, to move our way through the distractedness to focus on that which is necessary and important and proper. Number three, a fast-track way that we gain focus in a distracted time is when difficulties of any sort arise in our lives. Suddenly the routines of the day, all the things that are going on, all those things aren't really important anymore. When we're faced with trial and tribulation and tragedy, everything else goes to the wayside. It gets our focus very, very quickly. And number four, it is in these difficulties that we become, again, very focused, and that it is in these difficulties that our faith is most benefited. So really, to summarize that even down slightly more, it is in these times that our faith is most benefited and most grown in the times of difficulties or trials or tribulations. And again, I say this to set the stage for the text today. There's been a large portion of the New Testament read, there's been a seemingly long introduction given. I think Joe's are usually a little bit longer, but I'm starting to catch up to him maybe on introductions, right? Assume that he'll listen to this. I say all of this, again, setting the stage for what is to be understood. For in Psalm 39, David is in a bit of a personal crisis and in a state of distress and difficulty. David had experienced tremendous sin in his life. We know that if we... Uh, have even a basic study of the Old Testament in the life of David. And in the entrance to Psalm 39, David had been sitting quietly on the sidelines, observing the sins of the wicked, building in frustration as he reflected on the sin in his own life, all while watching the carefree, sinful lifestyle of the wicked. While observing this, David is becoming more and more focused on the things of God. At the same time, he's becoming less and less focused on his actual state and his actual condition. David is on the verge of a focused perspective shift in the opening verses of Psalm 39. As we jump in to look at the context of Psalm 39 and the background of Psalm 39, we see that for the most part, it's a very autobiographical psalm in nature. It also echoes much of that of the book of Ecclesiastes. 
There's a lot of parallels that can be made between the Psalms, or Psalm 39 and the book of Ecclesiastes. And some scholars believe that David actually wrote the Psalm during the period, uh, period of Absalom's rebellion. But other scholars believe that it was written after the time of Absalom's rebellion, but it most certainly would have included David's previous experiences as he quietly reflected upon the ways of the wicked. Regardless, one thing is absolutely certain when we look at this psalm is that it captured David's personal response in this state as he's reflecting upon all that he had been through and on the ways of the wicked. It captures his personal response to it. The psalm, again... It's a very focused and intimate one. As David gives us unique insight into how the trials in his life quickly got his attention and how these trials quickly refocused his mind or refocused his attention to the things of God. In other words, Psalm 39 is a psalm of perspective. As David reveals a sort of real-time mental shift of heart that was seemingly out of tune with the Lord to a heart that was quickly refocused on the things of eternity, on the things of priority. The psalm is vivid in its terminology of sickness and mental strain, primarily to reflect that of the emotional turmoil that David was in when writing the psalm. It echoes, um, and it also acts as a sequel to the preceding psalm of chapter 38. Psalm 39 also directly parallels that of Psalm 62 and Psalm 90, where in Psalm 62, David speaks throughout as one who is failing in strength, where he expresses perplexity over the fact that ungodly men continue their evil with impunity. And in Psalm 90, where David specifically speaks of the brevity of life when viewed in light of eternity. Thus, Psalm 39 begins with pieces of other psalms woven into it. And other books of the Old, uh, of the Old Testament, such as Lamentations and Ecclesiastes, And as far as the structure goes, it's organized really into four main parts. And to understand Psalm 39, you need to understand the structure of these four parts because its meaning and purpose is wrapped up within these four parts. They are, number one is verses one through three, where David speaks of his frustration in silence. So David's frustration in silence. Part number two, David reflects on the brevity of life. Part number two, David reflects on the brevity of life, gains perspective. Number three, verses seven through nine, the comfort of hope. David now understands through the proper perspective where his comfort and where his hope is. So number three is the comfort of hope, verses seven through nine. And number four, last but not least, verses 10 through 13 is the cry to God for relief, the cry for relief. Breaking down each one of these, looking at verse 1, we see that after opening the psalm and giving special attention to the chief choir master, Jeduthun, David begins abruptly in describing his present vow of silence as the psalmist begins his exposition of his state of silence. In the midst of his current state, David is being afflicted. And he's attempting to remain silent for fear out of acting out in further sin. David clearly is distraught and has come to some sort of end of his rope, if you would, if, if you would use that term, and trying to maintain his silence in the midst of what he is experiencing. In verse 2, David continues with his resolve of silence, but quickly realizes that his action of silence was to no avail. 
He states that in his, science, in his silence, his distress only grew worse. Can you relate with that, church? That you're sitting there, you ever been in that state before where you're trying to uh, maintain composure, you're trying to maintain silence, and all that happens is you just feel worse inside for doing that, and you're trying to hold your tongue, but then you must react? Keep that in mind, because how David reacts is very, very important. I know how I often react when I feel that feeling, but the, I think the key point of the entire psalm is how David reacts in this moment. David, again, in the beginning verses, is in a state of desperation. He attempts to not murmur against the Lord, but he finds himself quickly in an unsustainable state, no longer being able to remain silent. It's therefore here that David becomes moved from a state of internal dissonant silence and frustration to a place of verbal action. Again, we come to that, we can relate to that, we understand that, and it's pretty easy to see how we react when we're in this state, right? In verse 3, he states that the emotional turmoil burned within him, that the frustration had become so intense because of what he was witnessing and experiencing. He is now compelled to react. David is feeling this way out of the witnessing of the wicked. It is not out of selfish ambition. It is not out of selfishness that he is not getting his way. His frustration is that of observing the wickedness and how they get away with it and how he is left to deal internally with the effects of his own sin. So the image given in the first few verses suggests that David had been maintaining this silence for an extended period of time. The psalmist did not merely bite his tongue for a moment, only to quickly respond with words at the first onset of frustration. No, what we witness in the beginning of Psalm 39 is David finally verbalizing his emotions after an extended period of silence. Thus, the importance to heed how and why he verbalized the words that he does in the following verses. Again, it is important to try and connect with David at this point, to try and understand that frustration, because it's easy to understand those feelings. But the purpose for those feelings was that out of righteousness, not out of selfishness. There are many times I try and bite my tongue because I don't like what people are doing because of my own selfishness, right? my own sinfulness. David is wrestling through witnessing the sinful state of others and how they act out in their wickedness and how he is left in his state, to deal with his own sin. It is a, is a frustration of wickedness and unrighteousness and injustice. So upon entering the setting of Psalm 39, we see David struggling intimately with maintaining his silence in the midst of this sin. He attempts to maintain his composure, but the situation he is experiencing is just too much for him to bear any longer. It's too much for him to bear any longer. Moving into verses 4 through 6, The flow of the psalm immediately shifts from the author's internal turmoil to his outward and overt prayer as the psalm merges into its second section. Here, David reflects on the brevity of life. As verse 4 begins with the words, O Lord, as David reaches out for assistance from his creator. So after this period of extended silence, David now opens his mouth to respond. And what are the first words that come out of David's mouth? What are the first words, the first things that, 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 that leave his lips? None other than a lifted prayer to the Lord. And what it is, uh, none other than a lifted prayer to the Lord. And what is it that David asks of his heavenly father in his very first words? What does he ask of him, church? 
He asked that God would give him the ability to know the end of his days and to know how insignificant his life truly was. Ultimately, David begins his prayer to the Lord in asking him to give him an eternal perspective. Help me, Lord, to know the end of my days, right? Kind of put some of us in our place. I know it does for me when we think when we're in a state of frustration, the first words that come out of our mouth, right? Probably words that none of us would want to share especially in this context, right? What are the first words of David, though? Lord, help me understand my nothingness. Help me understand the number of my days. Help me understand how little I am, how big and how great you ultimately are. After all that time in silence, contemplating the sin that was before him, many thoughts surely went through the mind of David. But when it comes time to speak, the words of David are a prayer that begin by asking God to help him with his perspective, not to help him with his situation, not to fix everybody else. He asks God to help him with his perspective. Be good to note, church, that this prayer that David begins in verse 4, again, should not seem foreign or odd to Christ's church, to us. When we think about that, that concept, that our first thing that we should say uh, to God is, is a prayer of perspective, for this is exactly what Christ shows us in Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer. For how does the Lord's Prayer begin? In the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, it says this, Our Father in heaven, holy be your name. Hallowed be your name. This is the exact same format that Christ gave us when we open up our mouth to speak to the God of this universe. It is to say, you are holy. You are above me. We need perspective in our prayers, no matter what it is that we're praying for. And David mirrors this very thing. He just gives us much more context to look at it in. The beginning words of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is how our prayers must first begin. Thus David, in his response, begins his prayer in this most notable and commendable way with a proper perspective of who God is and who we are in relationship to him. It is God who is the creator, and we are his feeble and finite creatures. That is how David begins in his state. Continuing in verse 5, the psalmist continues elaborating on this humbled perspective and focuses on the extreme brevity of life. David refers to his life as a mere handbreadth or the measure of one hand length, Right? This is really what that was. David says, this is my life right here. In the midst, from the east to the west, this is my life. He states that his life is nothing before the Lord and refers to the life of man as a mere breath. Verse 6 then concludes this second section of the psalm as the author gives one more reference to man's place before God as he refers to the life of man as a mere shadow, that which is just projected. There's actually not even full substance there. It's just an image that you see at a particular time being a mere shadow. David then briefly reflects on the seeming randomness and unfairness of life when viewed openly and honestly in the light of the realities of God. As David mirrors the words of the first two chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes and goes on to discuss the meaninglessness of life outside And catch this, church, the meaningless of of life outside of a correct approach and perspective to the God of this universe. Moving on in verses 7 through 11, which begin the third section of the psalm, David has moved from frustration, section 1, to a proper perspective, 
section 2, and now in section 3, to the contemplation and application of his humbled state before the Lord. The psalm opens, in verse 7, with a question to the Lord. As he continues in his prayer, keep in mind this is all a prayer, asking his heavenly Father, for what do I wait? For what am I waiting for? For what am I doing? For where do I go? For what other option do I have? And as soon as he asks that question in his prayer, he quickly answers as he already knows the answer to the question, for he states that his hope was in the Lord. After and only after, church, the psalmist ensured that his perspective was proper, does he ask of the Lord's intervention in his situation. In verse 8, David prays to be delivered from the power of the sins which he regards as the cause of his present afflictions. Thus, David asked for deliverance from his suffering state, as he was in turmoil, and he was suffering in his state. He resigns himself to the will of God. He moves forward from the silence of bitterness to a serene silence of the heart, which submits to the will of God. The psalmist proclaims his entrustment to God and asks to be delivered from his own transgressions and from the transgressions of those Around him. Notice again, church, how closely David's prayer continues to mirror that of the Lord's Prayer. After putting himself and his perspective into the proper place with his Creator, our Father, hallowed be thy name, David now asks for the Lord to intervene for the sake of his well being, to rescue from, to rescue him from his state, give us our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses, and deliver us from the evil one. David continues to mirror that really all the way through if you look at them. What we have really in Psalm 39 is an example of what this looks like as a person cries out to God in the midst of their frustrations, their turmoil, and their their dissonance. And realizing that his afflictions were a result of his own sins, in addition to observing the sins of others, David casts himself fully upon, upon the Lord's mercies And he commits himself to the Lord in saying the words, my hope is in you. David makes it very clear once he comes to this realization. Here is who you are, God. Here is my state. What is my hope? Where do I go? What do I do? My hope is in you and in you alone. In verses 10 through 11, David concludes the third section by petitioning to the Lord that the plague of his suffering might be removed because he is perishing under the blow or the stroke of God's mighty hand. David saw that the sin he was experiencing was a form of discipline, as we read earlier in Hebrews chapter 12. The author of Hebrews tells us not to take it lightly and to endure it, for the Lord is working through it, for he disciplines those whom he loves. David knew that he was loved by God. This is why David was able to go to his father the way that he did in his prayer. Verses 12 through 13 are then the final verses of Psalm 39, and they conclude the final and fourth section of the chapter. David asks that Yahweh might take note of his tears and thus answer his prayers. For man is but a pilgrim passing through the earth, and both the earth and the man belong to God. David concludes that in this life, man is merely God's guest. This is David's conclusion. In his suffering, it isn't that he's owed anything from God. It's that in his suffering, he's only a guest, and he rests fully on the mercies of the Lord. Faced as he was, With potential imminent death, David throws himself into the arms of God. His final plea was that God would hear his cries and not treat him as a stranger. Rather, treat him with favor by making his remaining days bearable. 
David concludes on a note similar to the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. David sees God in his proper place. Thine is the kingdom and the glory and the power. It is yours, God, forevermore. And after petitioning for his needs, he then rests in the divine power, divine glory, and divine mercies of God. This is a beautiful and insightful psalm that David writes here, church. And really, as we, as we look at it and reflect on it, there is so much here, and it was a bit of a challenge for me to break it down to say, there's so much that we can apply. We can apply the Lord's Prayer. We can apply so many specific things. And I said, I've got to choose some of them. And so I took a lot of intentional time going through, and I came up with four primary points of application. I'm sure that you've already made multiple applications throughout, but here are four that I'd really like you to take the time to think on and reflect on in light of what David has for us in Psalm chapter 39. First point of application, church, that I'd like to make is this. We must learn to run to God in prayer, not away. We must learn to, to run to God. David, in an extended period of silence, what does he do? Where does he go? None other than to God. And when he goes to God, he doesn't God fix everything, make everything okay. Why aren't you listening to me? Why aren't you fixing things? I'm still hurting. You must not be real, right? He says, God, if you would just be so gracious just to hear my words, for you are God and I am not. Out of your mercy, would you please give ear to your child? David was frustrated and was hurting, most certainly. He was a man who knew the ugly face of sin in his life. But there's a reason why David is called a man after God's own heart. For David understood his place before the Lord. Make note of that, church. David understood his place before the Lord. And when the time of facing sin came for David to reckon, the first words out of his mouth were that of a humble prayer to the Lord. A humble prayer. And it is a prayer that does not start with petition. It is a prayer that starts with perspective. As Christ says in the words directly preceding the Lord's Prayer, For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. The Lord knows our state. The Lord knows our situation. We act as if sometimes we think that He doesn't. The Lord also knows what is best. He knows what we need. We need to go to him, therefore, church, doing as what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all of our anxieties on him because he cares for you. We cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares. David goes to him resting in who God was and what God was doing, relying on God's mercy because he knew that he had a God that cared about his current situation. Therefore, we must run to him, church, when we're hurting, not away from him. I see the temptation a lot for people to run away from God. They close up in our pride, in our arrogance, and our sinfulness get the best of us. But what we need to do is to go to him and to gain that proper perspective. What was needed for David in this point? Humility. And this is often why we run away from God. It's our pride. We must deal with that so that we can go to our Heavenly Father with a proper perspective. This leads to my second point, really um, a continuation of the first point. God is God. We are not. It is God who is God. We are not. God is creator. We are the created. God is the one who is eternal. We are the one who are finite. God is the one who is the God over all. We are the one who are his people. We must always remember our place before our creator. He is God. We are his people. 
David was careful in reminding himself and verbalizing out loud that he recognized his place before the Lord. But, there's a very important but here, church. David knows his God. David knew his God intimately. You could not pray a prayer like Psalm 39 without knowing the God in which you are praying to and knowing him well. He knows that his God hears him. He knows that his God cares for him. And I have found that quite often, not always, but quite often when I spend time with individuals who struggle to go to God in prayer, it is often because their concept of God is not a biblical one. For who would run into the arms of a God sometimes the way that we see God in our own minds based on our flawed experiences? God thus becomes distorted in some way to make the individual hesitant to run so defenselessly to the Lord, as if we had any defenses in the first place against the sovereign Lord of the universe. But when we do come to understand who our God is, both in his holiness and in his love for his people, we begin to fully grasp the depths of God. Church, it's in our reverence for God that we also come to fully understand God's love and care for us. Those two are actually perfectly balanced. When you understand really who God is and we are reverent before him, we recognize the love that flows out from that and we treat him the way that he deserves to be treated out of love and joy for our Father, not out of fear. Reverence and love really are harmonious terms. When we see God in this way, in the proper way, we much more easily entrust ourselves to him. Right, church? For he is God, we are not. We must remember our place before him, but praise God that he is a good God who loves his people oh so very deeply. My third point of application, church, again a continuation, is this. It is not our circumstances that need to change. It's our hearts. It's not our circumstances that need changing. It's our very own hearts. Note David's first words again in his prayer. What does he ask for in opening his prayer? He asks for perspective. Though the psalmist leads into petitioning for God to intervene, he does do that. When you look carefully at the opening and concluding verses of the psalm, the reader is able to see in the totality of Psalm 39 that what David ultimately desired was God and God alone. It was a transformed heart that David was looking for. He was in a situation, he was calling out to God, he was responding as the creature has been directed through scripture to respond to his creator. A large majority of David's prayer in Psalm 39 was a series of verb interactions that David asks of God. Deliver, remove, make, hear. David's prayer to the Lord was one of a relational understanding He understood his place to God. He understood who God was to him. He understood who he was to God. He understood what God desired for his situation. David was biblically sound and biblically minded. For what the psalmist desired most was a restored position before God. As Peter tells us, what is more important than our faith? Nothing. For not even gold has the same priority as our faith. A restored and transformed heart is what David desired most. Church, it's clearly not wrong to ask God to intervene in the difficult circumstances of life, for we see that with with David, right? But if God's intervention is what determines your trust in him, then you will be continually, continually 
disappointed, and frustrated with the ways of God. For it is us that needs the changing, church, not God. It is us that needs the changing, not God. And if God brings some form of deliverance, then we most certainly rejoice, for we pray for them. But if out of his sovereign will he does not, we must also rejoice. If we cannot say those two things, church, then we do not understand something. We are missing something of the concept of who God is. On this, uh, an easy example that I often use in, in explaining this point to people is that of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel, right? Daniel chapter 3, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing before Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is threatening to throw them into the fire, saying, kneel down to me, right? You must worship me. And and they say, no, we will not worship you. We worship God alone. And and it's the very specific words that stand out the most, right? And, And they really paint just a very broad theology that is understood throughout all the Old Testament into the New Testament and needs to be understood at large in the church today. And that is this. You can throw us in that furnace. We know the God that we're going to serve, right? He can rescue us. He's God of the universe. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we still worship him. Because they knew. You kill us, you take our life, God is God. They, they, they had perspective. They knew exactly what to expect. They did not desire death. They merely did not fear it. This is the same thing we see through the New Testament text. As the people would go, they say, I have no desire, right? But if I do, praise the Lord. What were Paul's words, right? To live is Christ, but to die is gain, right? The perspective superseded this, and when our priorities come, that even life is more important, right? They become mixed. That is tough to say, church, I know, even in the midst of all the tragedies that we've been through, it's tough to say that, but our God is a, is a God of eternity, not of just our brief life here on earth. He's a God of eternity, And this is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego recognized. They went to him in full confidence, and they said, throw us in there. You don't know the God that we serve. But even if he doesn't, they didn't know. They recognized that they were not given the answer. They simply trusted in the outcome. If you know the story, you know the outcome. There was a fourth person who went into the fire with them. Many scholars, theologians alike, believe that it was an image of Christ that was there with them, and they were protected. They were saved. But remember their words, even if he doesn't, we still serve the Lord. We must work hard, church, at keeping this perspective on Christ in eternity. It's not easy, but when we do, we are able to face even the greatest fears, even our greatest fears, with the utmost confidence in God. My fourth point, church, my final point, again, a continuation of the first three, is this. Life is short, church. Live it well. Life is short. Live it well. When we lose perspective on what the purpose of life is, what it's ultimately about, we become frustrated, we become anxious, we become depressed, we become afraid. But when we, as David did, discipline our minds to focusing on the things of God, the priorities of life suddenly become much more clear as we recognize the extreme finiteness in our brief stay here on earth. We gain perspective find ourselves in agreement with David on this point as we ask the Lord to help us to number our days. Help us, Father, to number our days. Because when we look at things in the proper perspective, we truly do, to come, truly do come to understand that life is short. Many of us can attest to that. We are all passing through in the broader perspective of things. 
same fate awaits us all. But God has given us only this one chance at it. And he gives us as much time as he has deemed fitting out of his sovereign will. This is how he has chosen to do it, to give us a brief moment on life, to learn the ways of him, to come to an understanding and knowledge of him as he calls us out of darkness into light. There's not much time that is given for that, but it is enough. So again, we ask that the Lord would help us to number our days. And we also, therefore, should take heed to live it well. In closing, church, we do in fact live in a very distracted society. But in our distracted world, we must learn to place our focus daily upon Christ and Christ alone. Remember the true purpose of what our time here on earth is really all about. It's the same for all of his people. As we conclude, I would like to reread again the opening verses of Hebrews chapter 12, as the author states, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us live a life focused on Christ, for our Savior is seated at the right hand of the Father. Let us learn to number our days, for our stay here is but a hand breath. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Father God, I do, in fact, pray that you would help me, that you would help all of us to number our days. Help us to see you, Father, in the proper perspective. Help me, Father, to keep that perspective there. If we do not work at it, Father, it is a losing battle. You have given us the means of grace to overcome. Help us to pray continually. Help us to humble ourselves before you. Help us to trust in you fully. Help us to have the proper reverence of you, knowing that you are the God who loves us. Help us to run to you, not away from you, when we do fall, uh, find ourselves in places of sin. Help us to learn from David in this, and we thank you for your word. Just pray for everybody here today that your word is spoken to them. Pray that you help them to recognize in light of eternity that all that there is is joy in light of your kingdom, Father. Help us to stay heavenly-minded Help us to stay eternally minded, especially as we continue on through the book of Revelation. As Joe continues next week, do continue to bless the preaching that is given here at Emmaus and continue to bless Joe as he continues to lead us through the rest of that book and through your word. We thank you for all that you give to us, Father. There is much to be thankful for. We worship you and we worship you alone, Father. It's your name we pray. Amen.